Hello and welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast. This week we're reading Doctrine and Covenants, section 46 through 48. As most of you are aware by now, I tend not to focus on multiple doctrines taught in the several scriptures we have to study, but instead I like to focus on just one principle. Sometimes that ends up being just one verse. This week, I'd like to narrow that down even more. Instead of one verse, I'd like to consider the importance of one punctuation mark, a sole and solitary comma found in these sections. As you know from reading the background of these sections, after the missionaries left Kirkland, some pretty eccentric things started happening. The manual calls them unusual expressions of worship. So God gives this revelation in section 46 about spiritual gifts, naming a large number of them, even though we know they are innumerable. Just before he gets into outlining these gifts of the Spirit, he prefaces them by saying this, section 46, verse 8. Therefore, beware, lest ye are deceived, and that they may not be deceived, seek ye earnestly the best gifts, always remembering for what they are given. And then in verse 9, For verily I say unto you, they are given for the benefit of those who love me, and keep my commandments. And this is the focus of this week's lesson right here. This comma, and him that seeketh so to do. How grateful we are for that tiny little comma. It may seem insignificant on the surface, but that little comma means the world to us. Please let me explain. We are all born with spiritual gifts, God-given talents, that we have been entrusted with to help in his work of saving his children. Even those not of our faith and those that don't even believe in God have some of these gifts. However, these gifts must be used for good and they must be practiced and harnessed to achieve their highest power and potential. But there is a law attached That's the first part of verse 9. They are given for the benefit of those who love God and keep his commandments. That statement excludes all of us from receiving the benefit of those marvelous gifts because we have all sinned and broken his commandments at some point in our lives. Thus, by divine law, we forfeit our right to his presence and to his gifts. But because of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, who willfully atoned for all of us, who descended below all things, and in this case, appeared in the form of a tiny comma, gives us hope in the phrase, and him or her that seeketh so to do. Meaning that it's okay If you're not perfect in keeping God's commandments, he knows you won't be. He doesn't ask us to be perfect. He asks us to remember him, to walk towards him, to learn and love 
and forgive as he does. This principle is illustrated in Brad Wilcox's analogy of a pianist. In his talk titled, His Grace is Sufficient, he says, Christ's arrangement with us is similar to a mom providing music lessons for her child. Mom pays the piano teacher. Because mom pays the debt in full, she can turn to her child and ask for something. That is, practice. Now, does the child's practice pay the piano teacher? No. Does the child's practice repay mom for paying the piano teacher? No. Practicing is how the child shows appreciation for mom's incredible gift. It's how he takes advantage of the amazing opportunity mom is giving him to live his life at a higher level. Mom's joy is not found in getting repaid, but in seeing her gift used, seeing her child improve. And so she continues to call for practice, practice, practice. If a child sees mom's requirement of practicing as being too overbearing, then perhaps it's because he doesn't yet see with mom's eyes. He doesn't see how much better his life could be if he would choose to live it on a higher plane. In the same way, because Jesus has paid justice, he can now turn to us and say, follow me, keep my commandments. If we see his requirements as being too much to ask, Maybe it's because we do not yet see through Christ's eyes. We have not yet comprehended what he is trying to make of us. Elder Bruce C. Hafen has written, The great mediator asks for our repentance, not because we must repay him in exchange for his paying our debt to justice, but because repentance initiates a developmental process that with the Savior's help leads us along the path to a saintly character. Elder Dallin H. Oaks said, referring to President Spencer W. Kimball's explanation, The repenting sinner must suffer for his sins. But this suffering has a different purpose than punishment or payment. Its purpose is change. Let's put these terms in our analogy. The child must practice the piano. But this practice has a different purpose than punishment or payment. Its purpose is change. The miracle of the atonement is not just that we can live after we die, but that we can live more abundantly. The miracle of the atonement is not that we can just be cleansed and consoled, but we can be transformed. The scriptures make it clear that no unclean thing can dwell with God. But brothers and sisters, no unchanged being will even want to. In the past, I had a picture in my mind of what the final judgment would be like. It went something like this. Jesus, standing there with a clipboard, and Brad, standing on the other side of the room, nervously looking at Jesus. Jesus checks his clipboard and says, Oh no, Brad, you missed it by two points. Brad begs Jesus, please check the essay question one more time. There has to be two points you can squeeze out of that essay. That's how I always saw it. But the older I get, 
the more I understand this wonderful plan of redemption, the more I realize that the final judgment will not be the unrepentant sinner begging Jesus, let me stay, let me stay. No, he will probably be saying, get me out of here. Knowing Christ's character, I believe that if anyone is going to be begging on that occasion, it will probably be Jesus, begging the unrepentant sinner, Please, choose to stay. Please, use my atonement. Not just so that you can be cleansed, but that you can be changed, so that you want to stay. The miracle of the atonement is not just that we can be home, but that, miraculously, we can feel at home there. But Brother Wilcox, don't you realize how hard it is to practice? I'm just not good at the piano. I hit a lot of wrong notes. It takes me forever to get it right. Now wait, isn't that part of the learning process? When a young pianist hits a wrong note... We don't say he's not worthy to keep practicing. We don't expect him to be flawless. We just expect him to keep trying. Perfection may be his ultimate goal, but for now, we can be content with progress in the right direction. Why is this perspective so easy to see in the context of learning piano, but so hard to see in the context of learning heaven? Too many are giving up on the church, because they are tired of consistently feeling like they are falling short. They've tried in the past, but they always feel that they're just not good enough. They don't understand grace. There are young women who are daughters of a Heavenly Father who love them, and they love Him. And then they graduate from high school, and the values they memorized are put to the test. They slip up. They let things go a little too far, and suddenly they think it's all over. These young women do not understand grace. There are young men who grow up their whole lives singing, I hope they call me on a mission, and when they actually do grow a foot or two, they flake out completely. They get their eagles, graduate from high school, and go away to college, Then suddenly these young men find out how easy it is to not be trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. They mess up. They say, I'll never do it again. And then they do it. And then they say, well, I'll never do it again. And then they do it. And then they say, I will never do it again. And then they do it. The guilt is almost unbearable. They don't dare talk to a bishop. Instead, they hide. And they say, I can't do this Mormon thing. I've tried. The expectations are just way too high. And so they quit. These young men do not understand grace. I know returned missionaries who come home and slip back into bad habits they thought were over. They break promises they made before God, angels, and witnesses. 
and they're convinced that there's no hope for them now? They say, well, I've blown it. There's no use in even trying anymore. Seriously? These young people have spent entire missions teaching people about Jesus Christ and his atonement, and now they think that there's no hope for them? These return missionaries do not understand grace. I know young married couples who find out after the sealing ceremony is over that marriage requires adjustment. The pressures of life mount, and stress starts taking its toll financially, spiritually, and even sexually. Mistakes are made. Walls go up. And pretty soon these husbands and wives are talking to divorce lawyers rather than talking to each other. These couples do not understand grace. In all of these cases, there should never be just two options, perfection or giving up. When learning the piano, are the only two options performing at Carnegie Hall or quitting? No. Growth and development take time. Learning takes time. When we understand grace, we understand that God is long-suffering, that change is a process, and repentance is a pattern in our lives. When we understand grace, we understand that the blessings of Christ's atonement are continuous, and his strength is perfect in our weakness. When we understand grace, we can, as it says in the Doctrine and Covenants, continue in patience until we are perfected. Elder Bruce C. Hafen has written, The Savior's gift of grace to us is not necessarily limited to time to after all we can do. We may receive his grace before, during, and after the time when we expound our own efforts. So grace is not a booster engine that kicks in once our fuel supply is exhausted. Rather, it is our constant energy source. It is not the light at the end of the tunnel, but the light that moves us through the tunnel. Grace is not achieved somewhere down the road. It is received right here and right now. It is not a finishing touch. It is the finisher's touch. The grace of Christ is sufficient. Sufficient to cover our debt, sufficient to transform us, and sufficient to help us as long as that transformation process takes. The Book of Mormon teaches us to rely solely on the merits, mercy, and grace of the Holy Messiah. As we do, we do not discover, as some Christians believe, that Christ requires nothing of us. Rather, we discover the reason he requires so much and the strength to do all that he asks. Grace is not the abundance of God's high expectations. Grace is the presence of God's power. In closing, I testify with Brother Brad Wilcox that God's grace is sufficient. Jesus' grace is sufficient. It is enough. It's all we can do. And all he asks is that we don't quit. 
that we keep trying. That we don't look for escapes and excuses, but we look for the Lord and His perfect strength. Don't look for someone to blame. Look for someone to help you. Seek Christ. And as you do, we promise you will feel the enabling power we call His amazing grace. We leave this testimony with you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.